If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Chris Yogurst. Uh, he is the author of, amongst other books, Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew-baiting Anti-Nazism and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering and Motion Pictures. He was on the show to talk about that. Uh, and also the new book, The Warner Brothers from Kentucky Press. Um, Chris is... Uh, an associate professor of communication in the Department of Arts and Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Love having him on the show. Uh, Chris, thanks for being back. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So we are going to talk today about the Warner Brothers, uh, who were, of course, it's not just the name of the studio. The Warner Brothers, an actual group of brothers uh, in early Hollywood, some of the first moguls, uh, and they have an interesting family history here. Uh, but what was it about the Warner Brothers and, you know, the the whole a hole in the um, the the uh, literature about them that made you want to write this book? Well, I it, the whole project started as a <clears throat> I wanted to write a biography of Harry Warner because there's when you think of like the Warner Brothers, it's always like Jack Warner is the Warner brother. Right. He lived the longest and he. You know, he was still alive when old Hollywood fever started and everyone was getting interviewed that was still around in the 70s. And uh, I I was going to write a book about Harry Warner. And then I met uh, biographer Pat McGilligan at a book talk and uh, he wanted to have lunch. And he said, yeah, you need to do uh, all of the brothers. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a really hard project. <laughs> I mean, that that's way bigger than just Harry Warner. And he's like, well, you know, but everyone knows who the Warner Brothers. Nobody necessarily, not, there's not a lot of people who just would know Harry Warner right off the bat. So I'm like, no, oh, well, that's a good point. So he's like, if you want people to really notice it and actually have this fill a gap in the literature, you should, you should tackle the brothers because there's, you know, it's been a long time. There's been little books like David Thompson had his small book a few years ago and stuff like that, which is, uh, it, it, it's basically just kind of rehashing. Uh, I mean, it's good, but it's rehashing a lot of stuff we already know. So I had an opportunity to uh, bring this to Kentucky Press, um, the screen classic series that Pat edits, and uh, really try to focus uh, on all of the brothers, which uh, I even found you know more about Jack than I expected. So, but I, it, as a part of this process, I was able to like kind of recenter Harry as um, the the central and really important figure that he is. Um, and one of the things that drew me to him was that he's so different than all these other moguls. He seems to kind of subvert all of these like nasty, uh, not all of them, but a lot of the nasty uh, narratives we have about the old studio bosses and stuff like that. He seemingly was very much a cut above uh, the rest. Um, so I, I had an opportunity uh, to to fit him into a story. Uh, and I'm, I'm very happy uh, that I was able to do that. Yeah, I mean, the. The, of the brothers, you know, the three who I think form the, the you know, the meat of this book, uh, you have Jack, obviously, who is, as you say, kind of the the old school uh, Louis B. Mayer type. Right. He's, you know, kind of a womanizer yeah. and uh, and, uh, you know, kind of a, a tyrant on the on the studio lots. Um, you have Harry, who is the uh, I think I think uh, a fair way to describe him in uh, in this book and in your in your research is as the conscience of the studio. You know, the kind of political, um, ideological, but also, you know, uh, uh, business conscience of the, the studio. And then you have Sam, who I think is really interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, especially in an era when we're thinking a lot about technological change and how that works within Hollywood itself, who was the kind of he was the guy who really pushed for sound uh, and wanted yeah. wanted the technological innovations that led to the talkies and, you know, all that. Um, when you were when you were researching them, what was your what was your takeaway uh, on how they interacted with each other and how that how they both uh, aided and kind of uh, retarded each other's you know efforts to to uh, build the studio up? 
Yeah, well, that's, you know, what, what I found is a lot of what, I mean, even going back to a great book like uh, Neil Gabler's An Empire of Their Own, you know, a lot of what he outlined in there still holds true. What I really found, you know, as far as like Sam being the technical genius, right, and Jack being kind of the goofball, and Harry, like you said, is the is the kind of the conscience of the studio. And that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to focus on him is because he, all of the, all of the reasons we love Warner Brothers, these these social conscience movies, uh, that all came, that whole mindset came from Harry. Um, and then we had Albert, who, man, was he hard to find stuff about. Um, he avoided the press big time, um, but he did a lot of interviews in the early days. I was able to, I mean, so he was you know, a lot like Harry, very business-minded, uh, very smart with uh, distribution and stuff like that. Um, and what one of the things I found that, you know, I suppose that that hindered, well, really that helped. I mean, they made a lot more mistakes. I mean, one, one of the things that was surprised, I mean, I know they had started in the early 1900s with, uh, with uh, you know, a single theater and then growing from there. But one of the things that I, I guess surprised me is how many like startups and failures they had between 1905 and 1923. Um, so it's like you think of, you know, the, right, they're doing the hundredth of Warner Brothers this year. It's the, you know, the centennial and, you know, you know, it, it's easy to assume it's like, oh, well, they probably got their start around then. It's like, no, man, they, by 1923, they were old pros. Like they had, they had fought Thomas Edison. They had been put out of business. They, they had theaters, they had distribution networks. They had lost those, started again. Uh, and they were really seasoned vets. Um, and I think that's why they had so much success in the 1920s. And grew so fast because they had already learned a lot, a lot from their mistakes. Well, what did they learn? I mean, what was it about those early Warner Brothers movies that were like, oh, this is a, you know, we don't really think I th- I, I think today uh, audiences don't necessarily look at studio labels and think this is a Warner Brothers movie. This is a universal right. movie. This is a Paramount movie. We think this is a star or this is a comic book. I recognize. Right. It's it's different. But once upon a time, you said this is a Warner Brothers movie, and people understood what that meant. Absolutely, absolutely. So they, you know, in those early days, those pre-1923 days, I mean, yes, they 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 were running theaters, they had distribution networks, they started to dabble in production and make movies and and try that out. They were the first studio, from what I can tell, to roadshow a movie when um I think it was Sam. Uh, who who found a copy of Dante's Inferno and they were road showing it with with somebody reading uh, some some from the book along with the movie um, and by the nineteen the late teens they were doing a lot of a lot of movies that or they seemed to be mostly interested in movies that that um, either Big Adventure uh, they did a serial called The Lost World I believe um, they were they were kind of close to the Sea League Zoo so they they. They were their buddies there, and they were able to use some of the animals. Uh, but they, they, uh, they made a lot of social conscious movies. So they made I'm forgetting the title of it, but I know um, Sam was involved in in this this government assisted movie about venereal disease. Um, you know, so there's these little things like that. But then, of course, one of the ones that shows up in some books is uh, My Four Years in Germany, which you know by the ambassador. Um, so they were already. You know, we're at the tail end of World War One, and you know they're already thinking of you know making a movie that's really touching on the kinds of things that are in newspapers, and you know they were already looking at optioning bestsellers. Uh, Harry was really interested in that, and uh, Sam was very interested in that. Um, so they were they were already by the time they incorporated, they already were interested in making movies that were that were in, about things that were in the headlines as well as finding popular books that already had an audience that they could make into movies. So those, those were two things that uh, clearly drove them uh, and were driving them by 1923. Yeah. I, w- one thing that's interesting in your book is, uh, you know, repeatedly we, we hear Harry Warner in particular talking about uh, the, the ability of movies to change society, to impact society, uh, to, you know, alter how people think. And that is also, you know, what uh, what some of the moral crusaders at the time argued, right? Like, so Will Hayes, for instance, there's a there's a quote in the in in here. I think it was when uh, uh, the jazz singer came out, but maybe maybe uh, maybe it was a little 
before or after. But anyway, this is uh, Hayes says, uh, you know, quote, immeasurable influence as a living, breathing thing on the ideas and ideals, the customs and costumes, the hopes and ambitions of countless men and women and children, end quote. That's what he, he believed film could be. Right. And uh, that leads to a lot of conflict between Hayes and then later Joseph Breen um, and the Warners, because, you know, Hayes and Breen say, well, you're making these gangster movies. That's going to make kids want to be gangsters. It's, it's bad for society. And the Warners say, no, we're showing that this is bad. Like, it's it's one of the early depiction versus endorsement battles, which I find really interesting that we're still kind of having them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and Harry weighed in on this early, too. I mean, as soon as there was pushback on gangster movies, he, he very publicly commented multiple times. I know at least one of them I quote in the book in the 30s, where he... He he essentially says that these these kids aren't criminals because of movies. Like they were probably already up to no good, <laughs> and then you know. So this whole you know, and the juvenile delinquency comes up again in the fifties, and Jack goes to defend the studio. But the Warners were really clever about about doing this. I mean, in my favorite example is right. They're making these big gangster movies, and then uh, you know the the code comes in. Joseph Breen comes in, or the code finally gets enforced by thirty four. Breen is there. And and then Hayes says, as soon as John Dillinger is killed, nobody's making a movie about Don, John Dillinger, right? Like, there's we got it. We can't do this stuff anymore. So Warner Brothers makes G-Men. So they take Cagney, who has been this gangster, and they make him the good guy, acting basically like the gangster still. Just he's a he's a you know a bureau man now, and they rip so much from the headlines in that movie. I mean, the whole little Bohemia shootout. Uh, in all the Dillinger stuff is in that is essentially in G-Men, just in another context. So they're still they're still creatively ripping from the headlines and just saying, "Well, we're on the side of good now." Uh, and uh, they, you know, and, and they were really good about finding stories that still touched on the moment where there was the the proper amount of comeuppance. I mean, a movie like Black Legion with Humphrey Bogart deals with you know, the rise of, of racism and, and, and anti-Semitism and things like that. And very cleverly, uh, we can, you know, they were able to depict really all these, this bad movement with this, this character that gets swept up in it, that, that, you know, pays the price in the end. Uh, so they were, they were able to weather that really effectively and still make really edgy, punchy movies um, even when the the code was as written and as enforced was seemingly supposed to be watering these movies down. Yeah. And uh, of course, Warner Brothers was one of the first studios to really go to war with the Nazis, uh, to, so to speak. You know, they pull uh, their, their people out of Germany in the early 1930s. Uh, interesting. So one of the stories that is often told about the Warners and that the Warners themselves uh, would say is that one of their employees was killed. Uh, during uh, during uh, you know a Nazi riot, um, but you found that that's not necessarily true. Is that no? That's not that, that where that legend comes from is Jack Warner's memoir. Um, he he lays it out that this guy was killed and they pulled out of Germany, and it's the guy was not killed, but they did have an employee in Europe that was assaulted by the brown shirts, um, and. Uh, so there, there was foul play that led them to pull out uh, in 33, which was they were the very first studio to pull out of Germany and say, we don't need your profits because we don't agree with you. So they were they were um, very much ahead of the curve there because a lot of Hollywood got criticized for sticking around in Germany um, for you know, mostly just because there was the Great Depression and it was a, a it was a market where they were still making money. Um, so they were in a tough spot there uh in terms of making some kind of moral decision uh about their business practices but no i think it was it was phil kaufman was was assaulted and it was covered in the press so i found some of that uh i think in variety uh and yeah so he did not he was not killed that was a that was you know jack as the storyteller that he was he he made that a little bit more he made a better story out of it yeah, <laughs> than yeah. it was. But the the baseline is something did happen to one of their employees in Germany that really was kind of like the last straw for them to to bounce. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, 
the the they start making actual you know anti Nazi films again. One of the first studios to to really do that. Uh, talk about that a little bit. How did that how did that uh, come about? How did how did their upbringing influence their their thinking here? Right, and that, that was another tricky situation for the studios. I mean, with the Warners and, and a lot of other studio moguls, I mean, they they grew up in in a part of Europe where I mean, I, I know the Warners. Their dad uh, Ben Warner uh, was going. Uh, was going to his, you know, go, going to his services um, in secret because it was the, you know, they would get attacked if they knew, you know, Jews were going to 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 pray or worship and and do their thing, you know, over here. So they had to. It was all secret. And and Harry Warner, you know, as one of the older, the oldest, uh, that that really had an impact on him. You know, coming of age and learning about his family's faith and that it was so. Um, so scrutinized uh, and dangerous to do um, where he was um, that, you know, when they saw this rising again in Europe, uh, it really struck a chord. And of course, the problem was not only, of course, they pulled out of Germany, their their product out of Germany, but the production code, one of the rules was that you could not ridicule other countries or religions. Um, and this was tricky because if you went after Nazi Germany, as justified as it was, it actually went against the production code rules. So that's why when Warner Brothers first started, these movies were all allegorical and they were all they wouldn't say Jew or they wouldn't say uh, Nazi Germany. Um, it was all things were just implied, like in Black Legion, we were talking about, um, yeah, I think uh Humphrey Bar- Bogart makes a comment about somebody getting a raise because of the size of their nose. So now you're, you're, you know, they're playing on these stereotypes that everybody knows and just going right up to where you're directly saying it and just not saying it. Um, they did the same thing with, they won't forget, which was based loosely on the Leo Frank case from the teens, which was a whole thing about anti-Semitism that a lot of people who would have been living at the time would have known. But by 1939, when Confessions of a Nazi Spy come, comes out, they they finally decided we're just going to go all in and we're gonna we're gonna use the words, we're gonna call it like we see it, and see what happens. And that's totally on brand for Warner Brothers uh, because they've been you know they've been beating to their own drum all along, uh, and that really opened the floodgates and lots of other you know not a lot of other movies. I mean, I, like you said, I wrote the book about the Senate investigation that went after all this stuff. I mean, there was. There was enough anti-Nazi movies. Uh, there wasn't a ton of them, but they they did have an impact. Um, and and you definitely saw, you know, by 39, 40, early 41, enough of these movies coming out by major studios with big stars uh, where uh, studios were fine, finally comfortable putting putting themselves out there and, and where they stood on what was going on in Europe before we were involved in the war. Yeah, and uh, you and you write a little bit about this about FDR's, uh, you know, involvement here. What was what was the involvement between Hollywood and the White House? Uh, you know, specifically the Warner Brothers. I know we're uh, we're, we're close with FDR. What what was the relationship like there? Like, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more on a mission to Moscow, which I think is a very interesting little uh, yep. diversion. But the but what what was the White House saying to Warner Brothers and the rest about you know what? how to help with the war effort right they the the warners were known as basically like the fdr studio and there was you know and it's and it's referenced in their movies where they're clearly you know characters are supporting the national recovery act and all this kind of stuff so they really put themselves out there as you know a lot of hollywood was supportive of fdr but i mean they put themselves out there in their movies as a pro fdr studio harry warner was giving speeches you know talking about about warner i know they were in in contact with the president's office that's one thing that really the warner brothers that i think that was one of their strengths and really it speaks to their their interest in topical stories is that they were always you know always in contact with the white house and harry was always sending letters um getting meetings and stuff like that um and and with with Roosevelt, they were they were really in lockstep with everything he was doing uh, for for a lot of the a lot of the thirties um, up and through. Uh, they got real vocal when the lend lease bill went through in early forty one, which is it, it, not unlike what we had been doing uh, um, 
you know, with the Russian invasion and all this kind of stuff, we're essentially just sending, uh, sending material, sending, you know, ammunition and all that kind of everything except soldiers, you know, it was a way for us to, you know, still say we weren't involved in the war. Uh, but Warner brothers, you know, one of the things Harry Warner was doing, uh, is he was trying to, I guess this deviates from FDR a little bit, but he was, he was holding meetings at his house where he was getting other studio moguls involved with discussions of like, how can we, how can we help the country be better? How can we use, not only use movies, but use our own platforms, uh, to, to, to build bridges between politics, between religions and all this kind of stuff. And that really speaks to a lot of what, who Harry Warner was. And I think that a lot of that trickles down through the kind of movies that get made as well. Yeah. Uh, as I, as I mentioned, so there, there is a, there's a movie that's made around this time, mission to Moscow, which is, uh, ends up being pretty controversial for, uh, Warner brothers because it is, it's based on a, uh, a, a work by a, uh, very, uh, USSR sympathizing, um, government official, which, uh, then, you know, in turn, they wind up whitewashing a lot of the Stalin's Stalin's crimes, et cetera. But you know, the point, the argument, uh, that the Warners make when they're hauled in front of, uh, the, the, the Senate or the, I can't even remember if it was the Senate or the house is, Hey, they were our allies at the time. We were just trying to help yep. out. Yeah. It, yeah. There was this, this came up in the, in the infamous HUAC investigations and they and they they hammered jack warner with this and i you know i really kind of felt bad for jack because he, he he was right when this movie was made the multiple studios made movies sympathetic with russia in 43 early 44 because they were our allies for a time and it's you know it's these all movies, I mean, I, I know in another book, Tom Doherty made a good point where it's like all of these movies seemed like a good idea at the time and then very quickly became not so great. And right. Yeah, they, they picked up. I mean, and, and just like um, uh, the, the movie in the in 1918 that they did with the ambassador, you know, to Germany, they didn't made a similar move. They found Ambassador Davies, who was in uh, Russia um, in the late 30s. And he, oh yeah, he, he really whitewashed the purge trials and uh, a lot of the, you know, made it look like anybody who was, you know, sentenced to death or murdered or put in jail or whatever was, these were all bad actors, which was, turns out wasn't the case. And, and, um, it's funny when I was writing this book, I had a, a fellowship at, um, UW Madison and one of the other fellows was a historian there who and her her focus is on on Russia and we had some interesting conversations about this movie and about that ambassador and and uh, she definitely had some opinions on this ambassador and one of the things that comes up uh, with the Warner history is uh, you know were they or weren't they in communication with the Kremlin, were they in communication with Stalin, all this kind of stuff. And it turns out that even though they were denying this, Robert uh, Buckner, who uh, who was the producer here, was was going back and forth to Russia. Um, and so they were certainly in communication with, if not Stalin directly. I mean, I found a letter in the Warner Brothers archives that I it it's unsigned, but I'm pretty sure it's a letter to Stalin. For I mean, It's a letter to Stalin, I know that. It's probably from Jack, um, because he was probably the only one with the 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 least political clout to think this might not be a good idea. Uh, but the movie was was screened uh, with to, you know Stalin watched it. Buckner was there, uh, and his all of his reports said that everybody was laughing at the movie, like they thought it was the stupidest thing ever. Um, but and it, it was pure propaganda. I mean, there's no question about it. There, just like the book, the movie whitewashes. Uh, you know, all of it makes Russia look good, and uh, it's just one of those weird things. Like, yep, we were like Jack said, by in '47. I mean, which only three years later, we were allies, and this was just a it was a wartime production, and this is it's really not a whole lot different than the early war movies where. You know, the good guys always win. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of bloodshed. Uh, you know, 
you know, thinking early, like Desperate Journey, these kinds of things, you know, these movies with Errol Flynn and it's, they're really simplistic and yeah, it's just wartime propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's shift gear slightly here. Uh, So there, there's some interesting stuff in this book about uh, the Warner brothers uh, and their fights with the unions, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, obviously kind of relevant to the moment. Uh, You know, it's, it's funny to look at the, the, the picketing today and compare it to the like, the riots, I think, is a fair, fair oh, way absolutely. to describe what happened in forty-five and forty-six. I mean, uh, so tell us, tell us a little bit about that. And also, I, I want you to, I want you to discuss a little bit about um, uh, Ayatsi uh, and the mob because this was something I did not know about. There was a, there's a actual, you know, mobster essentially running Ayatsi and 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 shaking down the Warners. This is all very fascinating to me. So let's, why don't we start there and then move to the, okay. the labor action. Sure. Yeah, this goes back to the '30s. So there was there was um, a gangster named uh, Willie Byoff, which is a perfect name, <laughs> um, and he was shaking down the studios as early as the '30s. So he was trying to take over IATSE, and uh, what he was doing as early as the '30s is he was he was essentially mobbing up that union and then anyone else who tried to do a rival union would either get intimidated shaken down and in some cases killed and there's some legends out there that he was in some of the early days he was killing some of these people himself um there was some some really wild stories in in chicago that i found about um you know a a, a rival union boss getting murdered um and uh, in, in pretty spectacular fashion, so it would get headlines. Um, so he was doing this. So he, so do, you know, that established the the fear of this guy. So then, what he started to do once he had his his fingers in the union, he started going to the studios and saying, "Well, you know, I could I could issue a strike, but if you give me uh, fifty grand." There'll be no strike. So stuff like that. So he was shaking down. I know I found, I know Harry Cohn for sure. I know the Warner brothers, of course, the Warner brothers ended up having to testify about this. Once the government started cracking down on organized crime and, and his activities, at least the, the union part of it. And, uh, they, they kind of hammered Albert and Harry about like, why didn't you come to us? And they both, Said this other base. We thought we would get murdered, so we're we're we we were scared. Uh, and you know, letters would come to the house. I know Harry's daughter had told some stories over the years of some of the intimidation and fear tactics that way. About you know we're going to kill you. Here's where we're going to hide your bodies and all this kind of stuff. So it was it was scary. And by the time you you know so th- there was a lot of the whole union situation is very complicated in Hollywood in the 30s and early 40s and you had you had not only mob leaders with some of these but then you have these kind of agitators that it might not necessarily be mobsters but they were more like Herbert Sorrell who wasn't really a gangster he was just more of like a pain in the ass um and he just he 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 wanted strikes he wanted riots he won i mean he was pushing this as far as he could the reason the riots happened on warner brothers like you said i mean and that's there i know there's one headline i don't know if it was la examiner la of times they called it the battle of burbank i mean there it, it got ugly um is so you had this labor leader in in sorrel who was who was there every morning telling people to really take the gloves off get angry uh the Warner Brothers head of security was a guy named Blaney Matthews. And Blaney Matthews was a former investigator for the Los Angeles DA. He was a guy really well versed in his own intimidation and getting info and all this kind of stuff. So he was he was ready for war the second there was going to be a possible strike at Warner Brothers and people showed up in a picket line. Uh he lined people up and was basically said, go at them. And it, you know, a battle ensued and like there's, there's pictures, you can just Google image search, you know, you know, Warner Brothers riots and you'll find tipped over cars and, and fire hoses and people were hurt and, you know, lots of people were hurt. I mean, there was weapons and stories of, you know, blackjacks and, you know, wrenches and, and all kinds of stuff. And 
and this was happening, I mean, it was probably worse at Warner Brothers, but I mean, you know, in the early 40s, there was there was riots at, um, or at least really aggressive strikes at Disney, at Universal. I mean, this was popping up all over the place. Um, it just got, the worst was at Warner Brothers, I think, just because you kind of had the tension uh, from the Warners of these shakedowns over the years and then combine it with a labor leader who really is really pissed off. Uh, and it just, you know, everything boiled and it got ugly fast. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, uh, I, it's wild to read about again, just in comparison to what, what is going on today, just, uh, which is, is fairly tame, um, right. by, by comparison. Uh, but the, uh, but then, uh, so th- there was also, there were, there were tensions between the unions, right? I mean, uh, there's, 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 there's some, uh, you know, uh, the uh, SAG, which is at the time headed by Ronald Reagan, is a little is a little less radical than um, the other union, which the 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 abbreviation is escaping me, but is is uh, headed by Sterling Hayden, I think. Um, uh, it, what was what was what was going on there? That was have I have I mistaken? Have I gotten this mixed up in my head? I'm, I'm... no, yeah, it's there. There's a lot of layers to this. I'm I'm actually paging back through my book too to remember some of this because it's uh, well because yeah there was the so there was IATSE we, which we've talked about right? right there was also the conference of studio unions yes the CSU and this is the one that uh, this was one of them that was so so the interesting thing about the unions at this time there were, there was either accusations uh, of being mobbed up or accusations of being communist. Um, and the and the conference of studio unions was one of these that had um, accusations of, and, and this also probably came from Blaney Matthews, who was was one of the Warner Brothers people who was was throwing around the the communist uh, slur everywhere he could. Um, and there was yeah, there was this rumor that you know after after uh, the battle at Burbank, uh, there was there's communist party leaflets were found and all this kind of stuff and. So I think this this all started to to solidify what would happen in forty seven in terms of uh, uh, HUAC and questions of, of communism. But I also like you know Jack Warner. You know, so at the time, like you said, Ronald Reagan was the head of SAG, and Jack Warner was was very appreciative. And at this point, it's it's you know it, you all you have to remember at, at this point, Ronald Reagan was a very I mean, he identified as a liberal. I mean, with with a lot of what he said and did, he was pretty centrist, pretty middle of the road, and he tr- really tried to weather the politics and the industry as best he could with with saving the you know the union, keeping any kind of radicalism out of it, whether it was whether it was actual communists, whether it was the mob, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and you know that that's what you know, and that's something I think informed. Jack Warner a lot too in terms of um I mean he he really respected Ronald Reagan after the the all the strike. I mean I guess the thing that we should we should point out is that like the battle of Burbank those unions that wasn't that wasn't sag that wasn't like above the line labor that was all artisans right that was carpenters that was set designers you know that was it was it was all trade uh, type jobs on the lot. Um, so the actors and directors and producers weren't involved in this kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of them were kind of um, taken aback and surprised by a lot of it. Um, so yeah, there there was, and, and, and it really since the thirties, once you get into the forties thing, remember a lot of these unions are not that old. So they're still, you know, they, they had kind of a, a, a they had to elbow themselves into the industry to get established and then by the forties, they were they were all uh, um, wrapped up in political accusations or scandals or whatever, and now they had to fight that as well. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. Sterling Hayden, I'm forgetting as well too. Hayden was was really involved, and in, you know, there's I, I can give a recommendation here too. The the uh, Tom Doherty's Show Trial is a book that does it. It offers a really good cross section of where all the unions were coming from leading up to 47. So he does a good job kind of parsing all that out and where the politics were. Um, and um, yeah, it's off the top of my head. <laughs> it's, 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 it's all jumbled up, but I know as far as informing the Warner brothers, um, 
SAG, I think they had their eyes on, I think just because, you know, one of their rising stars was the head of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. they, they had some, in, in terms of branding, they definitely had some, some interest in where that was headed. Yeah. And I, I get the sense from reading, uh, from reading your book that the, the, this, the, these battles with the unions kind of pushed, uh, the Warners, uh, I think Jack and Harry both, uh, a, a little, a little further right than they had been. I mean, uh, you know, by the end of, uh, by the, by the 1960s, right. You've got Jack Warner writing, uh, endorsement letters for Nixon over JFK, right. which is a, a kind of wild. Can't imagine something like that, uh, you know, really happening today. Um, but is, is very, is interesting. It is, it is. I mean, they, they definitely, and even going back to the twenties, I mean, they, the, the biggest complaints about the Warners that seems to be justified from is, is from some of the actors. I mean, they, they definitely, I mean, to use, to use a, a phrase uh, usually attributed to Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, they treated actors like cattle. I mean, they just saw them as, you know, punch in, punch out, you know, you know, you're overpaid kind of, there's lots of memos of Jack Warner and Harry Warner speaking that way of actors. Uh, but yeah, once the union stuff comes in and once HUAC comes in, they definitely take a step to the right. Um, more so Jack. Well, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, they're you know, more so Jack. I think Harry was, was all mo- most interested in trying to, I guess, what's the best way to put it by the time you I mean, what, by the time you get into the fifties, I mean, Harry's pretty old. He's looking at retirement. He's not, uh, a- as politically passionate um, but like you said, Jack definitely takes a step to the right, you know, supporting Nixon and all of that, which is, and you, and of course it's, it's important to point out Nixon was on HUAC. Like, you know, we hear all this about Jay Parnell Thomas, uh, hammering his gavel and breaking his gavel, shouting at Dalton Trumbo, but Nixon was right there next to him. So the fact that any moguls would, would support Nixon, uh, following that is very telling, um, of where, where they, where their pol- politics lie. Um, but once you get into, uh, you know, but I, I think the big thing about them is they, they were smart about where the political winds were and they wanted to be there. So of course, when the country swept up in red fever, they feel they, I feel like Jack, at least anyway, cause he was not very politically savvy. I think he was more bandwagon, uh, as far as his politics go, he was like, all right, here's the red tide. We're going to, we're going to jump on board with that. But as soon as. Uh, Kennedy, you know, JFK becomes popular. He very quickly, you know, starts sending letters, starts getting himself invited to dinners when Kennedy is going to be in town and kind of trying to rub elbows with that. So he was, he was also very quick to turn tail and go back towards the Democrats when that seemed to be the popular thing to do. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's, it's interesting. Just the, you know, how much of how much of, uh, as with anything else in Hollywood, how much of it is driven by personalities and, uh, you know, various resentments, um, yep. you know, it's uh, absolutely. Whereas, like, I think in the 30s, right, them being the big FDR studio, that was just they were, you know, they, I mean, they were they were even with the Depression. I mean, they were they weathered that fairly well. Um, so they didn't have a whole lot to lose. Um, FDR was pretty popular, right? Three-term president. I mean, so it was, it was, it was also kind of, even though there certainly FDR had his critics, but it was, it wasn't real controversial to be pro FDR in the thirties. Yeah. Um, so they, they seem to, you know, a lot of it, you know, I think again, that probably comes from, from Harry's political savvy, where it was, he, he was really good at knowing where the political winds were, where the power was going to be. Um, and this is why he stood up in 41 to defend the studio against, you know, the, the, against the Senate that was going after anti-Nazi movies. He knew that that was a minority opinion and that he was, he, they could, they could trample that. And Jack, similarly in the fifties, when the, the Senate went after Hollywood for, for seemingly in, encouraging or being, uh, you know, for encouraging teenage delinquency, um, Jack really, impressively trampled all over uh, Senator Kefauver there, who had just went after the mob, uh, by the way, and then was going after Hollywood for uh, Rebel Without a Cause and The Wild One and these movies. Um, 
And there's some great back and forths there. Um, but, you know, so as Jack, as much as Jack was a bandwagon, I think as far as politics goes, he, I mean, he, he could, he could step up when need be. And I think that, you know, there's a lot, even with the HUAC stuff, when you listen to what he's doing, I mean, he's, I think he was just terrified. I don't think he was this big ideologue. I think he was terrified that this was going to ruin Hollywood. Um, and I think that's why he volunteered to jump on and, and go first. I mean, I think, you know, Louis B. Mayer was also one of the first. I think it's it's a safer accusation or a safer description, rather. Just, you know, Louis B. Mayer was, you know, very much an ideologue. Um, but I think, um, yeah, Jack, I don't know. I, I think the best way to describe Jack is how he's always been described. is just kind of a clown. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, do you think there do you how to put this uh, without without coming trying to put my finger on the scale one way or the other? I mean, do you think he was actually worried about uh, communist infiltration, particularly in the unions uh, following the the labor battles or was it uh, or not? I mean, I or was he just worried about getting, you know, shut down by by the government? You know, that that's a really good question. Um, I. I tend to. You know, this is one of those things. Sometimes it depends on the day. I feel like right after, like if you if you think like right, you know, 45, 46, 47, there was probably some real and for a lot of people in the country, I think there there was that, you know, it's why we call that, you know, the red scare is a perfect description of this. There was just a lot of fear-mongering going on. A lot of people were afraid, justifiably or not. Um and it was, you know, you look at, you, you listen to people who were, were growing up during that time and, you know, they say the polarization today can't even hold a candle to how bad it was in the late 40s and early 50s over a lot of this uh, fear of communism. So I think there was probably a little justified fear in the beginning. I think the, um, you know, once you get to HUAC and the Waldorf Statement and the blacklist and a lot of this kind of stuff, I think the biggest thing for a lot of the studio moguls was a fear that if they didn't take a stand, people would stop going to movies. And, you know, a lot of this era has been has been portrayed as, well, they all became um, these huge anti-communists. It's like, well, they the the Hollywood moguls were pro-Hollywood above everything else. So and there's even stories that have been coming out more and more of even like Louis B. Mayer, who was the most you know reactionary of the moguls, who even during the the blacklist era was known to say he didn't give a shit what a writer's politics were as long as they were putting out good product. And it was similar from the Warners. Uh, Dalton Trumbo has some some conflicting stories on that, but as we know, Dalton Trumbo is also a really good storyteller. That's mm. uh, what made him such a great writer. Um, so I think there was it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think there's a period where there was a there was a very real fear and then I think that that kind of gave way to just a, an overarching concern of just trying to save the business and trying to placate the public. And if they feel like the public feels that Hollywood is is overrun with communists, which it really wasn't, um then you know, people are going to stop going to movies and that's, they're going to be out of business. Yeah. So I think that was, I still think when you look at all of it, I think that's the, that was the biggest fear, even at the height of the red scare for the Hollywood moguls, the biggest fear was, was saving their business. Yeah. Uh, let's skip ahead to the dissolution of the, essentially the dissolution of the Warner brothers. I mean, I, this, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a sad ending to their business and personal relationship. But, uh, what, let's, uh, what happened between Harry and Jack, uh, at the, when, when they decided to sell, uh, the, the company that led to them having such a falling out. Yeah, this is a, this is a story that couldn't have been written better for the movies. I mean, yeah, it's like you said, it's, it's a really sad story. Uh, and I've in recent, you know, this year I finally met, um, Greg or Jack's grandson, and we've talked a lot about this too. Um, so, and this goes back to the twenties. So, um, the Jack and Harry were kind of always at odds with one another. Um, and it's important to point out that Harry and Albert were the, were the old, very old school brothers where Sam and Jack were, were very much young and actually in Gregor's documentary, Neil Gabler points us perfectly. He says that, that the Harry and Albert were very old world 
in their their way of living and jack and sam were very new world and um so the thing about sam so sam dies i don't think we mentioned that so sam dies in 27 right before the jazz singer comes out sam was very much this bridge between his older brothers and jack and uh jack was always kind of this troublemaker always kind of um well like i said kind of the clown which can be useful and not when Sam dies, there's no longer this bridge between Harry and Jack. And now you have decades worth of, of competition and resentment and frustration that builds up. And, you know, Harry was, you know, he was married to the same woman. Very few people have bad things to say about him. You know, it doesn't seem like he was, you know, there was no affairs. Whereas with Jack, he was like, you mentioned him as a womanizer. He wasn't really the casting couch guy but he was he was also not a great husband and parent he you know he would be married he would always also have a girlfriend that annoyed harry to no end um lots of high profile battles over that so you have all of this stuff brewing for decades now they want to retire and one of the things when the brothers got started one of the things their dad said that harry took to heart was that if you do everything together you you will all you will all be fine whether it's you're succeeding or failing if you're together you will be able to weather the ups and downs no matter what and harry took this to heart and he lived his life this way um everything for the family everything to protect the family jacks didn't really care about that so much so when it came time to retire and start floating around um you know let's cash in our chips it there was you know you know back and forth about you know, we got to do this all together finally everybody gets on board jack and harry and sam are all gonna uh sell to um um jack, jack and harry and albert or jack yeah jack and harry and Albert. sorry i was just talking about sam yeah sam passes so jack harry and albert uh are are getting ready to sell um but as Greg Orr had pointed out jack's grandson you know there was there was talk in the press about well, even if the Warner Brothers sell their interest, they're going to need somebody to run the studio who knows the studio. So Jack is a is a possible person to maybe, even if he sells his shares, still run the the production part of the studio for a while. So Jack was the production head. Harry was the president of the studio. Albert was running um, distribution um, and things like that. So what what happened was they they agreed to sell. They they signed uh, the papers to sell all their shares. Um, what Jack did was um, take a backdoor deal to buy some of his shares back um, and then not only come back in to run the studio, but become president of the studio. So take Harry's job. And uh, this is something that, you know, that day when that was learned, Harry had a heart attack. I mean, he was so broken by this and his secretary the interview for, with of his secretary that Cass Warner um recorded and put on her website which is fantastic thank you Cass uh where she tells about being in the office when Harry gets this news and just how heartbreaking it is to see this guy go through this and again this is why I mentioned the one for all family thing that even even though you know and that's what really broke Harry is that you know he, that Jack really just did not care of their their father's wishes and and Harry had nothing but respect and admiration for his parents and the sacrifice that they they did and for bringing them to the United States and you know in multiple times when the brothers had had you know lost everything they had you know sold all their jewelry or or gave their savings to the brothers for the next startup whether it was for another theater whether it was for a grocery store bike shop any one of their ventures harry thought that you know going out together this would be our final ode to our parents sacrifice and jack kind of pissed all over that and that broke harry's heart and and harry's family you know even the descendants to this day fully believe that jack killed harry because harry had this heart attack from which he never fully recovered um, he lived in kind of a crippled state for a couple years and then died and Jack didn't come home for the funeral. And there was a lot of, just a lot of bad, uh, bad feelings around that. And 
uh, like you said, it's really sad and it's a really heartbreaking, um, you know, there, there's a story of, of Jack's son who, you know, and again, Jack, you know, basically, um, wrote his son off. Um, and you know, they were, they were estranged, you know, most of their adult life. There's a story I say in the book where Jack Jr. goes to visit Harry and, um, he's still close with Harry, uh, and Albert and, and Jack comes bouncing in for some reason and Harry just goes stone cold and he's fighting back tears and he can't even, he can't even look at him. And it's just this, it's just this heartbreaking thing to read that just tells us everything about how Harry felt and how a lot of the family felt about Jack's actions. Um, and that's, that's a, a, uh, that whole, um, sale and Jack coming back in and stuff really broke a lot of the family. And, and that's why I titled that section, you know, end of the studio, but also end of the family, because it really, it was something from which, uh, the family never recovered. Yeah. Uh, on that, bright note happy cheery note uh i as you know i always like to ask uh, at the end of these shows if there's anything i should have asked if there's anything you think folks should know about the book warner brothers uh the family I, uh, anything what 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 should folks know oh man there's so much um you know there the 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 lead up to 1923 is really fascinating so to know like where the you know what the brothers you know their trials and tribulations leading up to that um i think you know we talked a lot about harry i think a, a big part of what i wanted to do with this book was really focus on harry he gave a lot of really powerful speeches he was he was one of these people that was he, he wore his heart on his sleeve and um, I, I think the best example I can give is that after the Holocaust uh, and after World War II, Harry literally tried to save all of the displaced families himself. Um, he he was having meetings with President Truman. He was trying to uh, bring them all to Alaska because there was room. He was going to fund it. He was going to he was going to build infrastructure in Alaska to house all these people so we could then slowly bring them down into the United States. Uh, just incredible stuff from, from him. So that was, you know, that kind of stuff. And then also with Jack, I and mean, we talked a lot about how bad Jack is, uh, there was a lot of surprising stuff too. Uh, there was a lot of good things about Jack that might surprise some people, things that he did. He treated his family like shit, uh, but, and sometimes his actors, uh, but he also kept silent stars on the payroll when they, they aged out and he, he helped a lot of people surprisingly. So he also did, there was another side of him that I think will surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Uh, the name again of the book is the Warner brothers. Pretty simple. Just uh search for Chris, Chris Yogers, Y O G E R S T, uh, at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold and the Warner brothers, you'll easily Find it. Uh, it's well worth reading if you're interested in the early history of Hollywood and the Hollywood moguls and and that period in history. Uh, so check it out. Um, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.